Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good to be back. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And what we heard after that confirmed that President Joe Biden wants to turn the page on four decades of US tax cuts and talk of shrinking government with a call for not just more government, but higher taxes to pay for it. He celebrated his first 100 days in office this week with yet another massive spending package, this one squarely aimed at taxing the rich to give money to everyone else. All told, He's proposed nearly $6 trillion in new spending since taking office, paid for by at least $4 trillion worth of higher tax revenues. Now, as it happens, the US central bank, the Federal Reserve, also met this week to consider its next move. Its policymakers looked at the ocean of new government spending coming down the track, the booming stock market and the rapidly recovering US economy, and decided interest rates should stay at rock bottom and that the bank should continue to push money into the economy at a rate of $120 billion a month. All in all, it seemed like a good time to consider whether we really are seeing a revolution in US economic policy under the man that Donald Trump used to call Sleepy Joe. A little later we'll also hear why Americans rich and poor are retiring earlier these days, thanks to the pandemic. Now, that's the opposite of what we were told was going to happen with the population ageing and most of us expecting to work a lot longer. But first, let's have that talk about Biden's first 100 days and his big new plan for American families with two of Bloomberg's smartest analysts of US economic policy, Federal Reserve reporter Rich Miller and White House reporter Nancy Cook. Rich, Nancy, thank you very much for doing this in what I know has been a very busy week. Nancy, maybe just kicking off with you, can I ask you quickly just to tell me about the plan for American families and how it fits in with the president's other massive spending plans since becoming president? Well, Stephanie, I think that's the key operative word, massive spending plans. This uh, latest bill that he's talking about is a $1.8 trillion plan that includes $1 trillion of government spending and another $800 billion in tax cuts and credits for families. It's a very sweeping plan that would try to expand preschool access, access to community college, set up a national paid family leave uh, program, expand and extend the child tax credit through 2025. It's really a a liberal's wish list. And it comes on top of the other two major plans that Biden has proposed, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, which has passed Congress, and then the infrastructure package, which is $2.25 trillion, which Congress hasn't even taken up yet. So basically, he is proposing about $6 trillion in spending um, in a very short period. Yeah, and if you add, I mean, as you suggest, you know, if you add the 1.8 trillion for this package, and then about two each for the short-term stimulus and infrastructure, I mean, you are talking 
real money. I mean, Rich, is it is it remotely realistic that uh, all of that uh, spending is really going to come through? I mean, where are the deficit hawks that we used to hear from? Well, first of all, you got to remember the, the different time frames from these bills. The, the the first one that Nancy was referring to is you know getting going to get spent very quickly. We already have. You know the checks uh, are in people's uh, uh, bank accounts and are being spent. Uh, judging by what we've uh, seen with the trade deficit shooting up, uh, um, but the other other two packages are more longer term. The, the first one, the infrastructure one, is more of an eight-year plan, and the families one is more of a ten-year plan. So it's not all coming all at once. And as far as the deficit hawks, um, you can't see them in the markets. Uh, the Treasury yields went up. A little bit, but now I've come back down. You can't really, I mean, the Republicans are grousing a little bit about this, but with uh, interest costs so low, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is saying, now's the time to go big and we don't have to worry about the deficits. Well, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I mean, philosophically, uh, we are, that we remember that the, uh, the Volcker-Reagan paradigm we had in the 80s, you know, not only the sort of tax cuts, small small government uh, philosophy of Ronald Reagan, but also Paul Volcker coming in as a very muscular, uh, anti-inflation central bank governor. And the two of them kind of defined an era. Um, for you, I guess, you, Rich, it would be fair to say you don't quite go back to the Volcker Fed, but you certainly um, have <laughs> uh, been around. You, you've been around the block for for a while. Uh, you know, this is this is it's not overstating it to say this is overturning uh, a very long time paradigm, but it, not just the the role of the government, but also the central bank. Yeah, I think I mean I think it it, it it's right, uh, Volcker and. And, and Reagan together, you know, there was a, a, a tremendous change in uh, in the way uh, in the economy went from the government to the markets. It, uh, the emphasis was on efficiency, not equality, and and the uh, the power also went from uh, labor to the owners of capital, and it was monetary policy that was premier, not fiscal policy, and all of that we're seeing, you know, turned on its head. You know, Volcker wanted to get inflation down. Powell wants to get inflation up. I mean, and Nancy, we just heard there about raising efficiency. If you look at these packages together, particularly, I guess, the Infrastructure and the Families Act, you know, how much of it is about raising the growth rate, making the economy stronger, and how much is just classic redistributive big government? I think that the the first plan, the COVID relief plan, was really about um, raising the growth rate and making sure that the economy could crawl out of the hole from COVID-19. I think these next two packages, the, the families plan and the infrastructure plan, are really huge government programs that are trying to reshape and reorient the economy in a completely different way. They're trying to redistribute some of the wealth that we saw you know, rich people gain during the pandemic. They are trying to uh, give money to uh, communities like African-American communities that have typically had more of a wealth gap. Uh, They're trying to create new jobs in clean energy, raise the wages of workers for things like home health care aides and child care workers. And so it, it really is a massive government program to try to reshape the economy for what the Biden White House argues is 
sort of the, the things we need to do to prepare for climate change and to make sure that there's a stable middle class. Of course, Republicans are very against these ideas. And the two parties are interestingly sort of going back to their most extreme positions where, you know, Democrats are really proposing some of the most sweeping redistributive policies that we've seen in decades, whereas Republicans are going back to many of their old arguments, not about the deficit, as you and Rich have talked about, but about the need for small government, um, you know, keeping tax cuts in place. Um, It just shows how polarized the politics are on the future of the economy. But about the politics of this, though, I noticed uh, with the infrastructure bill that you know a lot of it's paid for in theory by raising taxes on companies and business, and that seemed to be quite popular uh, with the broader public. Um, is is this can the same be said of some of these efforts to increase taxes for, on the very wealthy? If you're just fixing on how much people can inherit who are in the really the highest bit of the income scale and sort of closing loopholes for the super wealthy. I mean, isn't that quite politically popular? That's also politically popular. There has been a raft of polling done in the last several months that show that, you know, raising taxes on rich people, uh, you know, raising taxes on capital gains. These are things that gained so much political traction during the 2020 presidential campaign. And one thing that the Biden White House really has going for them is they are proposing dramatic tax changes, but those tax changes are not as dramatic as The ideas that, let's say, Senator Elizabeth Warren put out during the campaign or Senator Bernie Sanders. And the White House feels like they do have some political cover because they can say to you know, more moderate Democrats and Republicans, look, we're not going as far as some wings of the party wanted. And they're trying to make the argument that wealthy people gain so much during the pandemic. You know, it's time to make them pay their fair share. How much of this actually has any chance of becoming law? Well, I think that that's the key question. People that I talk to think that these two bills are huge and uh, they're they're such big asks of Congress. Most people I speak to think that ultimately these two packages will be condensed into one package and a lot of the things will be taken out, particularly things from the American Families Plan, like potentially the paid leave aspect or, um, you know, universal preschool. I think the there's a lot of bipartisan interest in doing things like infrastructure, rebuilding roads and bridges in the U.S. and spending money that way. I think some of the components of the Families Plan will be a much tougher lift politically. And Rich, just thinking about the economics of this, I mean, there's some bits of the US tax code, which to outsiders seem extraordinary. I mean, the fact that uh, when people die, when, you know, someone very rich dies, and their heirs inherit, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, all of the capital gains on those get kind of counted in the inheritance and you can sort of start at at scratch if you're the person inheriting it. The fact that people would just never pay any tax on any of that of those capital gains seems crazy to outsiders, even countries that have relatively lower tax rates. I mean, do you there is an economic case for some of these changes? Oh, there's definitely an economic case for some some of these changes. Uh, um, not so much on the inheritance tax, which, of course, the Republicans tried to rebrand as the death tax and, and actually probably succeeded in doing. But on some of the cha- changes like increasing educational opportunities, expanding child care, all of that is aimed at uh, both increasing the size of the labor force, 
but also uh, increasing the skills of the labor force. And that's aimed at, at lifting this sort of long-term potential growth rate of the economy. Likewise, with the public infrastructure, it's, it's you know, improving roads, improving broadband so that you improve productivity and therefore improve the potential growth rate of the economy. So while Nancy uh, was, was right in saying, you know, a lot of this focus is on re redistribution, there is an argument they're making sort of a little more sotto voce that this is going to lift the long-term potential growth rate of the economy. And you have Janet Yellen there, who was at the Fed and is now uh, Treasury Secretary. Um, she used to have to worry about inflation. In theory, the Treasury Secretary doesn't worry so much about inflation. But it, this, this surely has to be a concern if you're looking at all of that spending and borrowing coming down the track, Rich. Yeah, I mean, uh, the White House has is, is gone out of its way to make uh, clear that, that this is something they're watching very, very carefully. The, the uh, Council on Economic Advisors took the unusual step of putting out a blog sort of post, sort of taking apart the, uh, the arguments of people like Larry Summers on, uh, about inflation. Uh, but I think in the end, you know, if we do get inflation, Janet Yellen recognizes as a former Fed, it's going to be up to the Fed to control it. Fiscal policy is not nimble enough, and, and all these fiscal, you know, depending on how much gets done, all this fiscal policies will be in train, all this spending will be in train. And if we get inflation and there's, there's needs to be something done about it, it's going to be the Fed and Jay Powell or whoever his successor is, his job to make sure it doesn't get out of control. And we did have, we had the novel backdrop uh, for the State of the Union of two women sitting behind the president, the leader of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the vice president. Um, you've got a lot of chairs uh, changing at the Fed in the next year or so, including the potentially the reappointment or not of Jay Powell as the, uh, the chairman. Um, do you think... Um, do you think President Biden's going to want to make the U.S. central bank look different as well? Put in some different faces, maybe different color faces? Thanks for putting me on the spot, Stephanie. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, on the one hand, it's hard to conceive of a more dovish central bank chairman than we have now in Jay Powell. That argues for for, for keeping him in place. Uh on the other hand, there, there's the big, there's a progressive wing of the uh, Democratic Party, which is going to be pushing hard for someone, uh, as you say, maybe, maybe you know, a woman or maybe uh, African American, or so that would be the first, the first black chairman of the Fed, sure, for sure, for sure. And while Powell has, you know, probably more than exceeded Democrats' wishes when it comes to monetary policy, he, he he's he's been more uh, uh, friendly, I would say. Uh, to some changes uh, on the loosening the regulations on the banks. And, and you know, you have people like uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren who really want to keep their thumbs on the banks and maybe do even more and, and attack private equity, et cetera. So that one I'd argue to for replacing him. But, I mean, it's probably going to be come down to a decision later this year. If the economy is going swimmingly well, as a lot of people expect, it might be easier to replace him. So just stepping back, finally, you know, we always focus rightly or wrongly on the first hundred days um, relative to your expectations you know you've both been in Washington a long time how would how would you rate president biden's first first hundred days he certainly spent a lot of money or tried to spend a lot of money but any surprises Nancy 
I think that his first 100 days have gone well. I think that even his critics would say that that they have gone well because he basically did two of the key things that he needed to do, which is, um, you know, inject a bunch of money into the economy to try to improve growth, to try to improve unemployment, to make sure that you know, families have stable financial footing. And then he's done a good job. He and his team have done a good job of getting the pandemic under control, ramping up the vaccination rate. And so the first 100 days have really been dealing with these crises. I think what has surprised me and many other political reporters is just how progressive and revolutionary his agenda has been. President Biden has always been seen as a real centrist, uh, a creature of the Senate, an institutionalist. He did not run a 2020 campaign that anyone saw as hugely progressive, uh, that all that attention went to Senator Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. And yet, once he has gotten into the White House, he has pursued policies that have shocked progressives and delighted them. And it's just much more of an ambitious, sweeping agenda in line with really the most progressive wing of the party than I think Democrats thought was possible. Just before we get to Rich, I just want to, it is interesting that, and that's obviously, uh, it's been striking to a lot of people. I guess that you could argue that if it's not going to, if most of it's not going to get passed in this Senate, that this is, you know, that he's not, he doesn't really believe this. And this is all gesturing. This is all just sort of getting the left off his back. I think that that is there's some truth to that with the American Families Plan, this most recent plan. I don't think that I've been told that his heart is not as in this plan as it is with infrastructure. But I do think that he feels very strongly about the infrastructure package. I think that he feels very strongly that they needed to pass the $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan. The Families Plan, they unveiled a third because it is the last priority for the White House. And I think that plan is much more of one that has less support in the West Wing or a bit more of a divided support among his top advisors and even from the president. And that is seen as something to get progressives off his back. And Rich Miller, what do you think of the first hundred days? And is, is anything have, have you been surprised by by Biden's radicalism or or, or anything else? I mean, I, I think I've been a bit surprised by his radicalism. But if you go back to the actual proposals that he laid out during the campaign, he is following uh, along with many of them. I mean, if you go back and read the literature that was, you know, he was putting out at the time, even though he came across as, as Nancy said, compared to Warren and uh, Sanders as a centrist, his 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 proposals were pretty radical. Uh, I think maybe one thing that he might have learned from President Trump is if you promise something, try to deliver it. And I think that's what he's trying to do. And that's uh, whether, as as you and Nancy pointed out, whether, you know, especially with the second two packages, it turns out to be more aspirational than than actual, you know, remains to be seen. But uh, I, I think he, 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 he did he did campaign with a pretty progressive platform. Maybe the rhetoric wasn't new. The rhetoric was more, I'm, you know, going to uh, uh, cooperate with Republicans, etc. But the, if you if you if you actually read the proposals, there was a hell of a lot of spending he would he was he was putting out there. Interesting. Well, in 100 days, maybe we'll, we'll come back and see how much more money he's tried to spend. There. But in the meantime, Nancy Cook, Rich Miller, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. And 
And now I wanted to bring you a different take on the recovery from US economy reporter Mike Sasso in Atlanta, who together with his colleague Alex Tanzi has been taking a look at why so many people at different ends of the US labour market are deciding 2021 is a good time to retire. Economists speak of a K-shaped recovery in the United States, so named because many Americans with office jobs fared well during the COVID-19 recession and their fates resemble the upward slope of the letter K. Many others in the travel and restaurant industries have fared poorly, though, and occupy the downward slope. That same dynamic is occurring in retirement. The pandemic has sparked a retirement rush of sorts in the U.S., at least among those fortunate enough to have built up their savings and investments. A soaring stock market has boosted their retirement accounts, while the pandemic caused many to reevaluate their priorities in life. In Massachusetts, Melissa Martini put away her business outfits for good at the end of March. She's retiring five years earlier than she expected from her job as an administrator for the agency that oversees the Massachusetts parks. I'm 58 right now, and I had it not been for the stresses of the pandemic and the cuts in my staff, I probably would have stayed in my position another five years. But I was looking at retiring probably at 62 or 63. I've seen so many people who have decided to wait too long to retire. And, you know, many of my colleagues or older family members and They get one year of retirement and then they get sick and they pass on. And it's just, I don't want that for myself. Traditionally, Americans have waited to retire until they at least reach their mid-60s. That's when most are eligible for full retirement benefits from the Social Security Administration. The pandemic, however, has upended that thinking for the fortunate ones. After the global financial crisis of 2007, the U.S. stock market took more than five years to recover its losses. In this pandemic recession, it took only seven months. Many are getting out while the getting's still good. While the pandemic caused some Americans to delay applying for their Social Security retirement benefits, overall it caused a net increase of 1.7 million applications, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Some of those people retired willingly, others lost their jobs and see little hope of getting a new one. Martini chose to retire after the state of Massachusetts kept cutting her subordinates during the pandemic, leaving her with too much work and too little time. It just was too much stress, too much responsibility to um, to really handle without the resources. So my husband and I looked at our investments and our finances, and um, and we decided, you know what, I can survive on my state pension, 30% of my pay for the rest of my life, because our investments were such that we could afford for me to do that. Six years ago, she and her husband bought a 42-foot sailboat. He's also retiring early, and they plan to put it to good use. And um, we're hoping that at some point in the future, when we're not worried about aging parents, um, we'll be able to sail to the Caribbean in the wintertime and live on the boat for you know, the winter months in the Virgin Islands, probably. To be sure, economists will spend years researching this most unusual recession and its K-shaped recovery. While some recent national surveys suggest people are retiring early, others are being left behind. 
A recent survey from the Employee Benefits Research Institute suggests the pandemic, in net terms, prompted more U.S. workers to delay retirement than to speed it up. It cited job losses in other stresses. Ultimately, the pandemic helps to shed more light on the gap between America's haves and its have-nots. So I'm delighted to talk now to Alex Tanzi, a senior editor for the Real Economy team in Washington, who worked with Mike pulling together some data to go with the story, but has also been thinking about broader question of of generational uh, inequality. We tend to think that uh, the last few years have not been great to young people relative uh, to old. And it was sort of uh, symbolized in that piece by the fact that you have uh, older Americans actually able to retire sooner than they thought because of how well the stock market has done. I mean, Alex, do you have a sense that um, the pandemic has worsened uh, generational inequality? The pandemic has, um, across the board, has created this K-shaped recovery. So there's millennials and younger people that are doing exceptionally well, people that had a job and kept their job. Um, but at the same time, many people in that age cohort, you know, had service sector jobs and lost their jobs. So it's it's a it's a mixed picture. Um, it's very nuanced. But you did you did find some interesting data that suggested that the the, the wealth gap might even be closing in some parts of the the labor market. That's right. So the the St. Louis Federal Reserve did a report, and they're showing that the. Uh, the wealth gap for millennials is getting a little bit better. At one point, they were calling it the lost generation. But now they're showing that um, while they're still less wealthy than they were expected to be at this age, they're closing the gap. And the oldest millennials are, you know, they're approaching 40. So they're not exactly um, super young anymore, but they are gaining wealth and they are um purchasing real estate and the real estate market's done exceptionally well in the U.S. this year. So they have received equity gains in their real estate holdings. And also um, the stock market obviously has done um, quite well. If I annualize the last three quarters of 2020, people under the age of 40 saw their biggest wealth gain ever of any cohort at any time. So they had a 17% annualized increase in the last three quarters of 2020, which um, was better than any other group has done at any other time. I'm just trying to think through the logic of that, because obviously if they have less money, it's more that they were, they were able to have the biggest percentage increase. But in absolute terms, uh, the older generations are still really the ones who are sitting on a big chunk of the wealth, surely. That's, a, that's exactly right. Millennials did see their assets swell to over $10 trillion. But at the same time, uh, you know, for example, baby boomers have seven times that much. So millennials also hold quite a bit of debt. And the type of debt they hold isn't exactly the, you know, so-called good debt. They are purchasing more real estate, which, you know. What's good debt? Remind me what good debt is. Uh, usually mortgage debt is considered good because it's an appreciating asset most of the time. But millennials tend to hold quite a bit of consumer debt, which is credit card debt. So, for example, um, 
you know, like I just mentioned, baby boomers have seven times the assets as millennials, but baby boomers have less debt. So millennials have 50% more debt than baby boomers. And, you know, one type of that debt that's been making the news quite a bit is student loans, which is just... um gone up by astronomical amounts in the last decade or so. And we were, earlier in the program, we've been touching on uh, the potential for inflation. Um, if you're, if there's a younger generation, as you point out, the younger generation isn't necessarily millennials anymore, it's, it's below younger than that, um, that's sitting on a lot of debt, uh, which is not tied to rising assets, um, what does what does inflation mean for them? I mean, we tend to think that inflation is not so bad for debtors because it sort of inflates away the value of the debt, but I guess they'd also be paying higher interest rates. Definitely be paying higher interest rates. Um, that's probably one of the biggest reasons for pessimism um, because um, wage gains really haven't been there. So if the other side of the coin starts to increase a lot, if their debt payments or debt service costs increases rapidly, it's going to put a, quite a bind on their um, disposable income. One problem, you know, in the past, people have always said, you know, a college education is needed and you can't really succeed without it. But at the same time, more and more people are receiving a degree. So the, the value of a college degree is going down while the prices are going up. So they've gone into quite a bit of debt to acquire a college degree that depreciates in value. Well, it's one of those things that, that raises the stakes if and when interest rates do go up because you're going to have these very disparate effects on different bits of the population. Alex Tanzi, that's fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. I'll be back next week with more from around the world. In the meantime, please, if you could take the time to rate the show, it would help us broaden our reach. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics during the week, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced, as ever, by Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Mike Sasso, Alex Tanzi, Rich Miller and Nancy Cook. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.